0: Welcome to Sales Talk for CEOs. I'm glad you're here. I'll be interviewing CEOs who have successfully scaled their B2B sales organization. In each episode, I'll start by uncovering the sales background of each CEO, dig into the strategies they use to build their sales organization, and wrap it up with what the future holds. We'll cover the good, the bad, and the ugly of scaling a sales organization. I'm your host, Alice Hyman. Wow, am I lucky to have Juliana Stan Campiano, I think I said that right, uh, with me today on Sales Talk for CEOs. Uh, She is doing some amazing things, including she has her own podcast as well. And uh, she's going to tell her story and reveal some things to us today that... uh, I probably won't shock you because you're a founder too. Um, you're a CEO running a company, but always good to learn from others. So welcome to the show, Juliana.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And I love the CEO founder stories because they do always shock me. I don't know why, you know, because you have your own and then you're like, wow,
0: yours is good too. Yeah. You're a stud too. Like you think no one else could have possibly ever been through all the weird things that happened to me when I started my business. And then you start listening to these stories and you're like, oh my gosh, that's even weirder than what happened to me. So it's always fun to share it and uh, appreciate it so much. But tell us a little bit about Oxygen. Tell us what your company does. Yeah. So
1: we primarily are known for three different things. We work within the learning strategy space, so people and organizational performance. We do a lot of learning experience design work, and we have an oxygen studio that's all around the brand and narrative for companies.
0: Okay, great. So now give me an example so I know exactly whether I should call you or not. On the people and organizational performance side, we've gone in and worked with a
1: lot of businesses through mergers and acquisitions. So, you know, bringing people together, organizing your learning group or your enablement group so that it can function well moving forward or modernizing. We've gone in and modernized those more legacy organizations. Uh, Learning experiences, you know, we do loads of customer-facing audiences, which I know is a a group that's dear and near to both of our hearts. Uh, So helping sellers sell. Uh, helping customer service agents have great conversations, and creating the learning that surrounds that, um, you know, and then the brand and narrative is all about the change, right? That our companies are going through. So, um, probably something that you're familiar with. We found that when we go in and help those sellers or help the customer service agency, you know, agents, the the narrative is old or the stories they're telling are old. And so we started to back up and say, okay, we need to start a little bit earlier so that we can have a
0: a consistent and really well done experience for those audiences. Wow. So that's keeping you very busy. And you have been (laughs) doing this for 13 years now, which is considerable. Uh, So take us back to the beginning. Before you started the company, what were you doing? And then jump to... How from doing that, did you get this idea to start the business? So
1: I was working in Europe. I had left the U.S. and the first kind of jobs that I'd had and decided to move, went to Munich. Uh, I got a job at Microsoft, which was lovely. And uh, primarily because I it was really great. It was such an amazing experience. And I got to travel all around. So it was a EMEA uh, based job, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, I was in my early 20s and just, you, you know, you can't move that ex- that experience can't be replaced. And I actually met Oxygen when I was there. So Oxygen was originally a UK-based company, uh, met the founders, worked with them as a client, loved it, uh, had a lot of experience. It was highly experiential learning is where it started. Uh, went through some experiences myself and thought, wow, if my education had been more experiential, I feel like I could have learned a lot more, right? So learning by doing, instead of somebody lecturing at you and expecting you to regurgitate it in some
0: amazing way. Isn't that so true though, Juliana, because, you know, I I teach at the University of Nevada. Um, I teach sales in the entrepreneurship minor just once a year. And I work with the students and it's a very experiential type of class. And they tell me that even today, you know, most of their classes, they sit still and listen for an hour or longer and it's really boring and it's really hard to learn. And yet we know how to provide an experiential type of learning environment and It's not happening at colleges. It's not happening at businesses. And we wonder why people aren't learning and soaking it in. So it's really interesting to me that at a very young age, you figured that out. Yeah. Well, you know, I
1: think it depends on your education, right? And where you came up through. And my college was an amazing university experience, probably for all the other experiences as well. And Um, You know, I always thought it was something wrong with me. I was too young to know that there were other ways and options. I always thought, well, this seems to be working for my, you know, for my peers. Why can I not just absorb all this stuff and then, you know, give it back in a way that makes my, my teachers so happy. And, um, you know, and I learned a lot of ways around the system, right? So I learned to memorize things and regurgitate them for tests. So I was a very good student, but I don't know that I actually learned the things that they were trying to teach me, but I learned how to navigate the yes. systems really well. Yes. So it's kind of interesting, you know, and it takes a lot of extra time, as you probably know, to create something that is more experiential in nature. And our, what I will say from our professor standpoint, cause I've had some conversations with them about this is um, they don't always have that bandwidth or know what they're going to be teaching, you know, coming up into the fall and it makes it very difficult to then create a curriculum that is very heavily facilitated versus, you know, giving up the information. And I think a lot of them know it and it's, they're kind of stuck in this system that's
0: hard to work within. It absolutely is hard to work within for anybody who's t- trying to provide training because providing better training does take more time, but it is absolutely worth it. All right. So you found this company, Oxygen. And they were yeah, doing yeah. This experiential learning and you back thought, Back to my wow. story. The, yeah, back to the story. <laughs> this is so cool. So what happened?
1: Yeah, so I ended up leaving Microsoft and joined Oxygen in the UK. So I went from Munich up to the UK. And I said, I want to open a US-based business. That was on my radar. I'd been in Europe for about three years and I was ready to come closer to home and they said, okay, we'll grow the business and you know, we'll see where this takes off. And I had a very large account that's here still in Seattle to this day. And I grew it threefold very quickly and put a business case in front of the founders and said, they want us there. At the time, the pound was two for one, made it really difficult you know, to do business with us, frankly. And they said, we really need you to have a US presence. I put my business case together and was off and running. That being said, that was between, so that was July 1st, 2008, when I opened in the US and landed here. Um, I'd started in 2007. And for those of us that were around in 2008, we all all saw what happened, right? It was probably the worst timing ever uh, to be given the reins to go open some new business. And yet it worked really well uh, in the US. The UK market got hit way harder than we did. Um I tried to help that business out, but essentially, I ended up buying oxygen in two thousand and nine out of their administration, which is bankruptcy in the u k.
0: Oh my goodness. So I yeah. learned a lot
1: in that year, and it was very scary, and I didn't expect to be a business owner uh, that year. I uh, had the sale of the business going, and I helped them wind the business in the u k down because i like all these legal things i learned about in the uk I became a director in that company i'm all of a sudden liable for the bills and the outstanding right. debt and right so you all of a sudden i was like oh my gosh so i started to like really get everything in order and i bought the u.s business out from it and in doing so i had to buy the liability of the employees in the uk for a year interesting for an american i was like no no, no i don't want that part
0: <laughs> yeah, that's scary.
1: Yeah, we had some really strong clients in the U- US. I had some employees I wanted to keep employed. You know, the economy was super uncertain. I felt a huge responsibility for that. And um, and I believe in what we, what we were doing. And it was being, you know, bought up in a time where things were really slow. And our primary audience that was buying were people that were providing the sales learning because... Everybody in 2008 was like, "We don't have sellers; we have order takers." Right? Help, right? So, trying to figure out how to navigate that, uh, and it helped me to get off the ground and to continue the business and get it up and going in the U.S. I had no idea what I was buying. I'd never run a company before. Um, I was probably just dumb enough, you know, to do it because <laughs> I because I just thought I could uh, more than anything and. Well, we don't know what we don't know, right? And so we just don't. And that's exactly it. And I think that that's a blessing when you're an o- entrepreneur. And you know, I'd be curious to hear other people's stories. That you know, you're kind of younger, you're more invincible, you don't have as many responsibilities, and so the risk seems a lot lower.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh! Wow. All right. So you you bought the company, and you're still you're still running the U.S. operation. Now you own it, you're running everything. Who's doing the selling all this time?
1: Yeah, you know, it was me and I had uh, another lady that I worked with and what I would say is that we we were kind of like we were kind of doing the work and selling at the same time mm-hmm. and it was one of those instances where very small business, very very nimble and I had a client at the time say, "How many people are in your business?" and it was like five you know, of a, and, and, and you don't really want to say that when you're selling into a large uh, client. And so it's like, well, it's like five and we have outside help. And they were like, oh my gosh, I thought you were at least like a hundred. And you know, we all like, we went back to the office and had a big laugh because it was like, you know, here we are out in front selling and then we're in the back doing the work. Right. You know? right.
0: Oh my goodness, Just Making it all work. But it was a lot of fun when it happened. And you did make it work because here you are today. So as you grew from doing everything yourself with these five people and you grew your organization and you grew your sales as well, what were some of the challenges or, you know, what was a big challenge that you had that made it difficult, but, you know, tell us about it and how you overcame it, how you changed things or what you did. Yeah,
1: you know, I think probably like a lot of CEO founders, I went through a lot of sales avenues trying to figure out the right one. And a lot of them failed drastically uh, up front until I, you know, figured it out. But I think I always thought other sellers or other VPs of sales or outsourced businesses had the answer, right? And I, I think I was looking for the answer for too long. And it was like, well, that person's been really successful. Maybe they can sell what we do. And it just, it was really, really difficult. And I had a lot of misses. And and I also will tell you, I have a, somebody who is in my business now who is running his own business at the time. And I had hired a new like VP of sales. And he, he pinged me, texted me and said, Hey, I saw you hired a new head of sales. And I said, yeah. And he said, let me know how that goes. Uh- <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I hate that. Because he firmly believed that like, You know, the people that are experts sell the business at the same time. And that was just how he had built and sold a couple of very successful businesses. And I didn't really want to hear it, you know, for a while either. And I think if I could have heard it earlier, um, maybe that would have been more helpful. But what I'll tell you is I read an article that resonated with me somewhere, probably like seven years down the line of like multiple, multiple failures in this space and always kind of coming back and like ending up selling and having somebody on my team or people doing the work we're selling us more and more in the clients that we're in i read an article that said as a founder ceo the best thing you can do is hire somebody that sells just like
0: you Uh
1: and that is very different advice than what you typically hear, which is hire people that are different than you, bring in lots of difference so that you can, you know, expand and have different things. And I thought that actually makes a lot of sense because I think owning the company and being the person with the point of view and the vision for the company, you it's hard to let go, right? And and there is something that you're doing that is really good. And I had known a guy for a number of years. We would get together every six months or so and have a coffee. And we just, he was in sales in our industry and we always just aligned. We aligned on how you treat customers. We aligned on how you approach work. We, you know, just all the things we had a lot of similarities. And I reached out to him and I was like, just read this article. (laughs) I feel like it's time for you to come over and join me. And he did. And it's been a number of years now. And it was probably the best thing that I've ever done. And the person reached out to me at that time and said, I see you have a new head of sales. <laughs> and I said, I do, but this one's going to work. And he was like, why? And I explained it. And, uh, and I've been right. And he, this person has since sold his company and started the studio with an oxygen. So he's a partner in leading that part of the, the business. And he's like, man, you nailed it with that. And it's been wonderful.
0: Let's just dissect that a little bit because I think it's so interesting. you know, Many of the CEO founders that I talked to did the sales at the beginning. I mean, all of them really mostly did, even though they felt like they stumbled or bumbled or weren't good at it or had some help, but they all were there. And a lot of them talk about this founder-led growth, right? This founder-led selling that is so important. And I believe it's Because you have what I call the entrepreneurial enthusiasm, right? And that just carries you. You have a good idea and you have that entrepreneurial enthusiasm and people just want to talk to you. And of course, they want to talk to the CEO. So it's easy for you to get in the door and it's easier for you to sell what you you birthed, what you know, and in your case, what you bought, right? That you fell in love with and you bought it. And so it makes sense, right? But a lot of CEOs don't have the confidence. They feel uh, the confidence in the sales area. Like they know how to do the part they know how to do if they invented it or they do operations or they come from finance or something like that. But the sales part, they feel uncertain about and the confidence isn't there. So like you, they think someone else can probably do this better. It's better if I hire somebody who does it completely differently than I do, right? But especially at the beginning, and and I don't know how many years into this were you by the time you got the 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 salesperson that worked that sold like you were you a couple of years in? A lot more than a couple of years in. It took me like seven years or something okay. to, to find Seven get years there. of bad sales hires, yeah. <laughs> not alone, Juliana. Seven <laughs> years of bad sales hires and not growing the way you wanted to, and probably all that time you had to keep selling because. The salespeople couldn't do what you wanted them to do, so it didn't really relieve you of having to sell anyway. And then you read this article and you you said, hmm, that is so interesting, right? And like you said, what if I had learned this so, so much earlier? So everyone out there who's listening, who is a CEO or who supports a CEO, especially in your early stages... Don't always think that the answer is go out and get somebody who already knows sales, and they they do it differently. And you know that's not always the answer. And I think depending on what you sell, um, certainly, and in your case because it's services and it's consulting, it's very personalized to each company, relationships, yeah, and relationship uh, strong. It makes so much sense to yeah. hire somebody who sells like you, right? So when you think about hiring these people, it's like, okay, how do I do this? How do I get the right person? You got that gut check, which is so important, but then you need some other things to think about as well. And if this person has the right personality, um, some good connections, has built a network, um, they understand what you do, they love it, right? And they know how to do that, more founder type sale, right? That's going to really help you. And then you feel like now I have my right hand sales, you know, person right by my side and we can do this together. So tell us how that works. He came in and you started and, and how did it grow from there? Well,
1: I think if I just even back up a little bit, you know, what's interesting about it is I think when we go out and look for a sales, especially our first sales hire, to your point, we look for like checking all the boxes of success in sales. And I think part of why I was successful with it and then bought the business was because when I was hired, I actually didn't talk about all those things. I was like, I love the product. I believe so deeply in it. I believe everybody needs this opportunity. You know, it was like, it was innately in me that I believed in it. And I think as a founder CEO, you have to look for that person that really believes in what it is that you're doing. And that will resonate. Just like you said, like that founder, I don't remember what you called it, the CEO entrepreneurial charisma that just like oozes out because you're so passionate about what you do. You have to find that person that believes just as much as you do in what it is that you're doing, especially when you're smaller, right? Because it just, it, it makes all the difference, I think, for growing new business and people taking a, a, you know, they're taking a risk when they hire a smaller business, potentially. I don't know if that's actually true, but it's, it's a perceived risk. They just have to get over. Well,
0: small companies who don't, you know, they don't have the track record, right? You're taking a risk of going somewhere right. where there's no track record. And, you know, they're probably, you know, they could fail, right? They've been in business 20 years. Well, they're probably going to stay in business. Although today we know that that's not necessarily true, right? Who knows? But yeah. The piece that you, you know, you repeated a couple of times, it's so important, is they have to believe what you believe. And I feel so strongly in that. And I think that so many people make the mistake early on, but later on as well. And I, most of the companies that I work with are 10 plus years old. Some of them are 20 years old and they're hiring people because they need to fill a spot. Right. And they're in a hurry. They're in a hurry. And especially sales, right? If there's a vacant position in sales, you know, we've got to fill it quickly. Rather than finding people who believe what you believe, even though they may not have as much sales experience or exactly the right experience, if they get excited they get that twinkle in their eye if they want to talk to you about what you do and you can see that enthusiasm right and you can see that they believe what you believe those people are really really going to help your company blossom you know when i interviewed amy duross um that is exactly how she grew her company you know they were a little startup in silicon valley and they kind of bloomed out of this place and she just had a group of people who all believed. And then they just kept attracting people who believe. Yeah. And yeah. that is exactly how she built it. And I think it's a huge mistake that CEOs make is hiring to fill a spot. And yes, they hire the very best person that they can find out of the candidates to fill that spot, but they're missing that piece. Is this person excited about what you do? Does this person believe what you believe? So I love yeah. that you got that figured out.
1: And I would take less on the skills side to your point and more on that innate belief side any day, because you can, skills are so much easier to teach in my mind than just a, you know, a, a, authentic enthusiasm. Yeah. So, um, the other thing I would say is, so he, he's been enrolled for quite some time and it was really about, instead of growing more salespeople, I've grown scaffolding around him and the business. So, uh, enablement a VP of sales enablement. I have a growth marketing person. Uh, you know, so all the other attributes that you need for like the end to end sales, especially when you're small, I don't think it's more salespeople. I actually think it's spread out across the continuum of where you're gonna find clients and grow your clients and start placing in really good people that work well, you know, together to create more demand. Because what I found is that he spends more of his time than in sales meetings doing what he does, but he not having to necessarily do all of the other things at the same time, which can take a huge amount of burden um, from somebody that's really good at that, you know, in-person client meeting or virtual client meetings or whatever they, ha- they happen to be, you know, from that face-to-face time and allows him to focus on driving things through the pipeline versus filling the pipeline, you know, and doing all of the other aspects around it.
0: So here's an insight for everyone to note. Hiring more salespeople is not the only way to get more sales. And in fact, sometimes it's not the way to get more sales at all. And I see this mistake being made over and over again with people trying to grow their sales, right? So they want to grow their sales. So they think I have to grow my sales organization, Yes, it's probably true. If you want to grow sales, you're going to have to grow the organization that supports that. But that's a lot bigger today than we used to think it was, right? Everybody was in silos and sales had to do their own thing. Now it's customer success. It's marketing. It's operations. It's finance. It's everyone is in that scaffolding that supports sales, right? But I see uh, CEOs and sales leaders making the mistake of, okay... We're going to hire more salespeople and we'll be able to, you know, go deep and wide into this market. And then the salespeople are not hitting their quota and they're wondering why. And it's because just hiring salespeople alone is not enough. And I think that most organizations could exist with far fewer salespeople if they put in, as you said, the scaffolding around each salesperson that would allow them to do the most important work, which is being face-to-face or phone-to-phone or video-to-video with their customer, uncovering what the problems are, bringing insights in, you know, discovering together, working together, and, and moving things along. But we all know that salespeople spend very little of their time And sales leaders spend very little of their time actually with the customers. And they're spending so much time on, like you said, the administrative stuff and uh, prospecting and uh, trying to get the conversations and doing the work. Proposal writing. Marketing should have been good. SOW. Yes, it's crazy. So so tell us more about the way you built this then. So how did you decide that you weren't going to hire more salespeople? You were going to enable the salespeople that you had. I think, generally speaking, I saw that his capacity to,
1: you know, and you have to look at your people, right? So what I would say is get to know the individuals really well, understand their strengths, understand their weaknesses, and fill in the weaknesses around them. And that's essentially what I've done. I already had a VP of sales enablement. They immediately went together uh, and doing the work. And then we've added people as we've, as we've grown in order to continue supporting them. So he he doesn't he needs more things taken off of his plate that he's less good at versus somebody else coming in and trying to replicate the things that he's doing. And in a services business, you know, we also get repeat customers and we have relationship managers, right? And account managers that are in the accounts that are helping with a lot of the sales process as well. So from a pure sales position, we don't necessarily, you know, we aren't a a tech startup that has you know, 80 SDRs uh, on the phone, feeding leads through or or whatnot. So I think you have to look at your business. You have to look at the kinds of sales that you drive. And then you have to look across your team and see what does it mean to sell? I think also is a really great question to answer. Like just as you just said, you know, there are a lot of parts of the sales process that a lot of really good sellers are not amazing at. And so how do you take those parts in like the SOW writing or the contract management and and make sure finance is set up to do that? Or you have a strong operations person that is, you know, working between your CFO and your salesperson and on the marketing side, they're also like, like love them to death. They can write these amazing notes to clients, but from a marketing perspective, like, you know, it's just, it's not going to happen. So how do you make sure that whole aspect is somebody that's really good? at that specific role. And, you know, we just, as we grow, we continue to invest in like another person and another support and capability. And we also have very senior consultants that can sell, but we're more the solution side of it. But I think, you know, if you follow kind of the trends in selling, that's a lot of the sale today is that solution architect. The clients want to hear from the person that has the expertise. So from a sales perspective, my, um head is really good at getting in and getting the first meetings. He's really good at setting the next person and the right people into the next meeting, right? So it's that orchestration of it versus needing more sellers in there trying to push something at a client.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I love that. Can you explain to us what does your org chart look like in sales? So you have a leader of sales, you how many salespeople do you have? And then what are the supports? You mentioned a few. Uh, people who can write proposals and people who can generate leads. But just describe for us what your sales organization looks like right now. Well, so ironically, the other thing I would say is people that are really
1: good at sales are not always the person that you want managing lots of other sellers. So a lot of it actually rolls up into our VP of sales enablement and into our head of marketing. And the sales is really sales. And so I've separated those things out because I actually, I don't want him spending a lot of time trying to help other people to sell. I need him selling and I need the other lady out selling, doing the same thing. But she reports into my VP of uh, sales enablement, which is kind of interesting because it's a very large account and it's relationship-based and it's really managing uh, day-to-day versus new sales. He's out mm-hmm. doing 100% new sales. My go-to-market person's out doing 100% new sales. And he reports up through our um, chief creative. Wow. So very spread out and not a lot just centrally located within
0: a sales department. So what is the, some, some of the other sales enablement? How does your marketing support sales? What is their role? Yeah,
1: this is always interesting, right? And there's so much friction between <laughs> between marketing and sales, and so we have a lot of fun um, walking through the process. And we have a we have a front of the funnel process, right? Of expectations that um, are go to markets like I own this, right? This is my responsibility. But once I get it here, it is now your responsibility, you know. And so it is all about the the messaging and the getting the word out through all of the different channels, seeing the data that's coming back in and then handing over. So we were at a, one of my people was at a Gartner conference a couple years ago and took away the phrase, um, a customer ready conversation. Yes. Yeah. And so that really stuck with us because I think a lot of times marketing can go, well, 70 people click this thing open and now they're all leads for you you know, and inherently our emails automatically open messages, right? It does not mean anybody engaged with them or read them. And so we think about between marketing and sales as a customer ready conversation. So it is a qualified lead that actually wants to meet with us before it gets handed over to sales. And that's kind of that demarcation of responsibilities.
0: And how do you feel now about the, the lead generation? Are they giving, are they able to hand over enough conversations because you know every salesperson in the world right now pretty much wishes they had more conversations with people who could buy from them um you know there's a lot of reasons why they don't whether we won't get into here but every everyone is wishing they did do you feel like your salespeople have enough conversations Are, is your marketing able to feed that i think it's getting there is what i would say i don't know that it'll
1: ever be there you know, and I, I think it's one of those things that is almost always an open switch if you're continuing to grow, yeah. right? Because you're going to have another person that wants more <laughs> of those coming their way. What I will say is that we talk a lot about um, not just the people that are ready to buy in an organization, but let's try to get as, get to know as many people in an organization as possible and filling the sales time up with those conversations so that you can really understand breadth versus just trying to go after this one person because I think we all know that that is very difficult.
0: Yeah. Well, it just doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. It does not work. It's stuck. I was talking um, with Luigi's group yesterday and we were recording and we were talking about how how does this happen that sales get stuck? Well, a lot of times salespeople start with one person in an organization and it may be because it was an inbound, but even if it was outbound, because they didn't do more of an account-based approach and contact many people in the organization simultaneously, they get stuck having a conversation with one person and that person won't let them get any further or talk to anybody else. And now you've kind of got a blocker, somebody who said, don't talk to anybody else. So if we do our marketing right and you know our demand gen right, and we bring the conversations forward. We've infiltrated many parts of that organization before the salesperson's ever having a conversation. So multiple people in the organization know who we are and know that we might be having conversations with others. And they've seen us on social media. They've gotten our emails. They know who we are, that kind of thing. And that is so far superior um, when we're doing that to, you know, dialing for dollars, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yes. And and we, you know, a lot of people are out there saying right now, you know, that um, we need to do more better demand gen and we need to stop relying on SDRs that are fresh out of school, that don't know how to sell, don't understand the day in the life of their customer, have no idea, you know, they're just trying to book an appointment, right? Yes. Um, that method is failing miserably. And so uh, there are ways to make it work, but on for most of us, we would be far better to slow down a little, reorganize, and do something much more similar to what you're talking about is enable the people who are good at that talking to the customer and understanding their needs by taking everything else off their plate, right? I talk about having sales assistants all the time. Way before SDRs, I used to talk about that. I'm like, why don't you get somebody to do all the things your salesperson doesn't do well instead of just totally. arguing with your salesperson all day long about the things they don't do well? Because totally. the things they do well, they do so well that if you just let them do them, you'd have more sales, right? Like yeah. entering things into CRMs or like you mentioned proposals and things like that. If we would just let salespeople do the things they're good at and take the other things off their plate, imagine how our sales would soar. It's very different. And I I think there's so much to be said for that. And for
1: some reason, it's so hard to see that happen. And strength finders, like their whole premise um, of the strength finders, if you know that kind of personality test is lean into the strengths and the weaknesses, like let it go. They're never going to be amazing on that. Like acknowledge it, be aware that that's not a strength because that's what you need to be able to say, I'm going to really struggle if I have to do X and Y I know why, but take those top 10 strengths and let somebody just drive those all day long and your organization will be a lot healthier for it.
0: Oh, 100%. I just read an article about being in your genius zone. And um, I read a, a book called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. I don't know if you've read it, but I highly recommend it. It is an absolutely fantastic book. It's called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And when I read it, he was talking about um, on you know, why we're productive or not productive or why we enjoy our work or don't enjoy our work, it comes down to something pretty simple. It's what are you doing all day long? Are you working in your genius zone? Or are you working yeah. in your zone of incompetence? Or maybe even in your zone of competence, but um, they have the zone of incompetence, the zone of competence, the zone of excellence, and the zone of genius. And I had this big aha I'm working in my zone of excellence most of the time, but I work in my zone of genius a small percent of the time. What if I could increase the amount of time I work in my zone of genius and of course stay in excellence on the other times and not get into the zone of incompetence? Other people Mm -hmm. can do those things and much better than I can. And then I started thinking, wow. So if you think about the way most sales organizations are built, what they have done is forced people to work in their zone of incompetence. And of course, they're not productive. And of course, they're exhausted and, and, and sometimes highly unproductive and not hitting their goals because you've moved them from their zone of genius, or at least their zone of excellence, to doing things that are in their zone of incompetence. Yeah. And if you can just recognize that, and, and it's
1: not actually that difficult to take it off the plate. And to your point earlier, which I think is brilliant, is you don't need this huge sales organization. You need it to work smarter, right? And so if you look across that and look at the people that are your top salespeople and then think about the roles that are needed to support them, you're probably going to have a way more efficient and potentially less expensive sales organization than you would have had if you just put a lot of sellers in like churning through stuff that they're not very good at.
0: Well, you know, the cost of sale goes down, and your churn goes way down too, right? So we're always talking about how we churn through salespeople all the time. So yeah, I think, they, and they don't want to do that either. Ironically, they, do you know, I've talked to
1: so many people, and it's like they don't want to go somewhere and have you know, have to use their, even their competence and incompetence, I would say both of those are probably not great because you're either doing something you don't like, even though you know right. you're decent you at it. it but yeah. So it's sucking your energy out of you every day versus the things that like fill you back up. Yeah. Um, yeah. They want to be successful just as much as we want them to be successful.
0: Yeah. Well, so you've grown your company over the 13 years and you have a sales organization that's really working. So what's next? Where, where do you want to grow your sales to next? You know, what do you see in the future?
1: Well, you know, so it is interesting because as a founder, you you start to go, well, now people are doing my job, right? Everybody kind of takes a piece of your job as you grow and you go, what's my next job and how do I do this? And so, you know, I'm working on that on my side and like wrote a book and start a podcast similarly, right? because you've we've learned a lot along the way, and there's some brilliant people out there that I feel like we don't hear enough from. And so I'll be doing a lot of that. but from a sales organization, it's continuing to scaffold in my mind. So as we grow, it's like what's the next um, strategic hire? What's the next strategic hire so that it can just slowly um, grow out. That is not a mentality that every business has. And I think the other thing, and I I would love to know from your conversations, are I'm a cash based business. I've never had funding. I've grown everything through, I mean, well, so I bought it in bankruptcy. So (laughs) started in the negative, (laughs) grew it out of that, you know, and I've been profitable every year that I've been in business. You don't grow, you know, 10x overnight and all these stories that we hear in the media. And unfortunately, a lot of those companies are getting hit pretty hard uh, today in the economy that we have but i so I look a lot about what you know what's my strategy, what's the next hire gonna be and I look across my team, I look across their capability sets i and you know invariably they're really good also at going if i had a if I had a you know and you hear these like consistent messages for quite some time and then you eventually release that role and say, okay, you can go hire your." person to do X. And that's what we'll continue to do. Luckily, I have some amazing um, senior strategic leaders in that space. And so we're, we're filling in the, the day-to-day and able to bring people up that are newer in role, uh, which is also really fun to be able to do for everyone.
0: Absolutely. You want to grow your people into the positions that you need them to grow into. And, you know, your role in sales has changed since you started the company, right? And every CEO always has a role in sales, but it does change as the company matures. And that's what's really important to realize. We can never completely step away from sales as the CEO because it's the strategy, it's the support they need. um, It's that. positioning, you know, our salespeople can bring us in to these big deals and introduce us, right? It's evangelizing that you now finally have the time to do. You write the book, you do the podcast. So your role has changed as your organization matured so that now you have time to think more about your strategy. Like you said, how am I going to build the scaffolding? What's our next hire? How are we developing the people, so that they're coming up into the positions that we need. And you have time to think about how your business should grow because you're not so bogged down in it. And you're also not trying to run the sales or do the actual sales. You've built it so that others can do that successfully. And I think that is just genius. And it's obvious to me that you're working in your zone of genius most of the time.
1: Well, I will tell you, I get a lot of energy from sales. And I think just from a career perspective, I started off in recruiting at a large law firm, which I would equate to sales. Um, And so I do, you know, every once in a while, I'm like, Hey, can I go to a sales meeting? (laughs) I need to go and like that just energizes me. So I think knowing what gives you the energy and, and being able to ask for it is also smart. Um, And I do I go to the strategic ones, but sometimes you just you just want to have that, especially when you're dealing with things that you're like, wow, this is, you know, you're stretching yourselves, as you just said, right, I've had to continually find what my next thing is, and my next thing in order to grow and build the company. And it's not always the thing that you're comfortable with. In fact, writing a book was like, on a bucket list, but man, that was going to be a struggle for me, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence that I could do that, you know, and I attribute that to one of my high school teachers that told me my writing was not amazing, even though I was in the advanced class, but he just, you know, gave me a lot of feedback that I felt like I could be able to write outside the box. And he felt like I should write inside the box.
0: (laughs) So, you know, those things are hard. What is the name of your book, Juliana? It's called Radical Outcomes. Radical Outcome. Very good. And your podcast, what's the name of your podcast? Radical
1: Perspectives. So that's all about... That is more a business podcast, uh, similarly, and it's primarily people that have come up from diverse or underrepresented backgrounds uh, and had success in the world and kind of sharing the
0: stories about how that's been done. Excellent. So I I advise everyone to tune into that podcast. And Juliana, just as we're leaving now, um, what are some words that you have for CEOs who may be now thinking differently about the way that their sales organization is built, and how do you you know how what would you recommend they do to start changing that and thinking a bit differently?
1: I think I would say map it out you know and and really map out your people that you have and their strengths and like the and the weaknesses that you see um, we call them weaknesses a lot, and it feels so negative but i I really encourage us opening up about what we're what You know, frankly, what we don't like doing um, is typically uh, a competence or an incompetence to your language earlier, and um, just letting that have light. I found for people also is freeing uh, for your people to be like, oh man, yeah, that thing. Like, I know you want me to do it, and they like want to do it for you, but it's just dragging them down. And those are the things they spend like five and six hours on, and you're like, like as a you know, as a smaller business, you're like, no. Nope, that can't happen. So I would say really mapping that out to see if you've got your people kind of in the right spots, and or if you have too many people maybe in a role that you know they that you you need other competence in your in your organization. Um, I would definitely start there. I did not learn that early enough. You know, I was I was stuck into kind of that set way, and I think I didn't give marketing nearly enough um credence as I wish I had earlier in because I was more on the sales side and having done sales myself. And when that came into the organization, I was like, oh wow, this is like, <laughs> what was I thinking? I could have done this so much earlier. Oh. And uh yeah, y- you know, you learn you learn those things through trial
0: and error. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Well I, I love uh that you're saying to take a look at the people. And I think a super easy way to do it is have everybody write down, just make a T-chart. Here's all the things I love doing. And here's everything that's meh, you know, or you could have three, three, right? You could have love doing, can do and don't mind it. And the rest is never want to do it again. And you really could take the people you have and move them more towards at least their zone of excellence and spending some of their time in their zone of genius and by reorganizing people based on what they do best and what they love to do and what energizes them, your organization is going to thrive. And Yeah, I think it's going to lift. In the sales organization, you're going to find you probably need far less people, one, or two. You don't really have that many sellers. You have some people who should be doing some other things to assist selling. And there's a few who are really good at selling. And if you reorganized it, you might just see a whole new world, so. I think
1: it can really give your people a lift, which is ultimately what makes your company just continue to grow.
0: Yeah, gosh. Juliana, thank you so much for spending time with me today. It was really fun to talk with you. Thanks for sharing your challenges and and the things that you've done. I know it's really helpful to everyone out there that's listening. And so I appreciate it. And I can't wait to meet you in person someday. I'm gonna to have to come up to Seattle and, and see what's happening and we'll go out and do something. Absolutely.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been very insightful and I just appreciate the time.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Sales Talk for CEOs. You can find me at alicehyman.com. Be sure and connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know that you heard the show. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe, write a review, and share the show with another CEO.